If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations provided by the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Anda Bolarga and I'm a TMC member. I'm delighted to talk to Dr Owen O'Sullivan, Renal Medicine Doctor in NHS Lovian and Kidney Research UK Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Dr O'Sullivan is passionate about medical education and has an ongoing interest in evolving research around clinical decision making. Today we're going to explore this topic and talk about cognitive bias and its impact on decision making. Welcome Owen and thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much Anna, good to be here. So in 2018 you published a great review on cognitive bias and clinical decision making in the Journal of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh. Today, um, I'm hoping that we can summarise some of the main learning points from the article. But before we start, um, I was hoping you can tell us a bit more about your interest in clinical decision making and the research around cognitive bias. Where did this originate and how have you developed it over time? So I suppose I should probably begin by saying that I'm an enthusiast rather than an expert. And while I've published a bit on the topic and I've run a trial of an intervention, I think it's it's very much an emerging field and something that I'm kind of only increasingly beginning to learn about myself. So I guess my interest began when I picked up quite a well-read book now, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. So if you haven't read it, you really should. I think it's a New York Times bestseller and it brings together just decades of Kahneman's work on cognitive psychology. And ultimately, he won a Nobel Prize in economics, actually, for a lot of this. And it was really eye-opening because it discusses all the various ways in which we think we're being very clever, we think we're making brilliant decisions, but actually the machinery of our thoughts results in you know really, really substantial errors. And while it wasn't about medicine, and none of his case studies were medical, it was really easy to see how it could project onto our work clinically. And at the time, I was looking for a research focus for a master's that I was doing, and you know this natural enthusiasm fed into that. So I started thinking more and more about uh, how this could apply to my own clinical work, how it could apply to research, sort of looking at interventions for this. And that's kind of where it all began, really. That's very, very interesting. And so from your kind of initial reading around it, why did you think, or why do you think that decision-making and clinical diagnosis matter? So every day, as you know, we make thousands potentially of clinical decisions. And to put it simply, when we make a bad decision, it tends to lead to bad patient outcomes and it sucks up a lot of the finite resources that we do have. And I suppose a lot of the literature focuses on clinical diagnosis as the sort of most important decision that we will make. And you know intuitively that it is the foundation really of the subsequent care for anyone. And I don't think we realize just how poor we can actually be at this. So, you know, just to throw some numbers on this, up to 15% of our diagnoses, when you do retrospective analysis of cases, they're wrong. They're often completely wildly wrong. There's a huge discrepancy between what's written on death certs and what is found on subsequent uh, postmortems, I think up to 30% in some series. So you know, we're really not that good at doing it. 
And in terms of the scale of the issue, it's estimated that about 30% of avoidable deaths in the UK, medically speaking, are related to misdiagnosis. And if you're, you know, if you're more litigiously minded in the US, which is obviously culturally different, but 50% of all of the court cases taken and medical litigation are due to misdiagnosis. So it, it's huge. And, you know, if you just start looking for this, you'll start finding huge numbers, uh, you know, 12 million Americans, 100 billion could be saved and so on. Um, you can just start putting zeros onto all the numbers with uh, great prejudice and see just it's a huge, it's a huge problem. And I suppose what is interesting just to finish on that is that while it's a the scale of the problem is huge, most medical schools and certainly mine didn't really touch on this. And it's, it's only recently that we've even begun to come across it in our postgraduate learnings and not in, not in a systematic and integrated way. So, so it matters for those reasons. Yeah, that's, that's a huge problem and scale, as you describe. And mm. I'm very interested that we touch a bit later on on, on education around this topic. So how, how does, where does cognitive bias come into this? And how does it lead to medical error? Yeah, so I suppose the first thing is, you know, it's worth briefly in very, very broad strokes just thinking about how we actually make decisions. And there's loads of these fancy psychological models. There's dozens of them, these hypothetical deductive approaches and heuristic-based approaches. And it's all, it's all a little baffling to a non-expert and certainly to me. But you can lump them briefly into two big buckets, two big approaches. There's these intuitive fast sort of ways that we make diagnosis. This is the, the really quick spot diagnosis. And then there's these slow analytical ones. And this is the model by which most modern psychologists feel that we make our clinical diagnosis. We use one of these two models, uh, the fast ones or the slow ones, and they tend to call them system one and, and system two. And I can talk about it in a little more detail if you want, but cognitive bias, to answer your question, comes in when the way in which we address a problem, the sequence of steps, the mechanics of our thoughts lead us away from rationality and lead us away from correct thinking. And it makes us misinterpret the data that's in front of us. And I guess, you know, maybe just to dig down on that a little bit more, it's worth thinking about the difference between these kind of type one and type two thinking, because a lot of the literature goes into this in a lot of depth. And I'll explain why in a second. So this fast type one, these are pattern recognition. It's easy. It's what the experts will often do very, very naturally and quickly. And it's really easy to do this. It's cognitively, it doesn't place a lot of burden on ourselves, right? So we spend 80, maybe 90% of our time walking around making decisions like this. It's susceptible to bias because it's quick. We're not super, super engaged with the process by which we're making these decisions. We're just looking at an ECG, looking at an x-ray, looking at a patient and snapping our fingers and saying, yeah, that's the problem. In contrast, type two thinking, this slow, deliberative, where you sit down with a cup of coffee and really try and put all the pieces together, where you're analyzing everything very, very thoughtfully, you're better able to spot incorrect approaches and biases as they emerge and de-bias yourself so you can see the mistake ahead and say, actually, that's a red herring. I'm going to ignore that or whatever. And the, the feeling is that most of the errors that we can go into in a minute, most of the kind of cognitive biases are going to occur in type one. And type two is this way in which we might perhaps mitigate against these biases, cancel them out, de-bias ourselves. So that's the kind of model of how we think. That's how cognitive bias fits into that model. And a lot of the discussion in the field really fits around how we might decide when to activate type two thinking and when not to, because it takes a lot of work. It's a real headache to sit down with a cup of coffee and put pieces together. It's cognitively a lot more burdensome. And in, in real life, we need a blend. You can't go around 
analytically thinking about everything because you'll go crazy and get nothing done. But equally, you can't shoot from the hip all day because you will make a mistake. So the skill of an expert comes from when they can, they know when to deploy each way of thinking. And and that's, I guess, where the artfulness of medicine comes in. But, you know, what's really interesting actually is that it's this is more than just psychological postulating. Like if you if you look at functional MRI studies, there's a few papers like this, and you look at people in system one or system two thinking, completely different parts of your brain light up. You have completely different uh, glucose metabolics in there. Um, you know, there's, there's meaningful changes physiologically that happens when you think in different ways and when you're making a mistake and when you're debiasing yourself. So, so it's not completely theoretical, actually. I think it's fascinating that we can map this and see this process, you know, with MRI technique. When you talked about bias, you, you know, you talked plural biases, and perhaps it would be useful if you could give us some examples of the types of cognitive bias and maybe scenarios. Yeah, of course. So it, it all sounds a bit theoretical, doesn't it? So the first thing to say is that there's hundreds of these, and there's these big, long, wonderful lists that you can dig into when you're curious about it. And the second thing to say is that it's not entirely clear which are the most important ones, which are the ones causing the most harm, which are the ones that are easiest to commit, because it's going to be different for everyone. It's fully contextual because you and I are completely different thinkers. We'll have different clinical scenarios. We'll have our own personal proclivities towards certain biases and so on. So, so I'll give you some common ones, but it's worth knowing that the things that are relevant to you in your practice might actually be very different. So there's a huge amount of personalization and reflection that has to go on. So, you know, simple ones first. We'll just take maybe, maybe two or three. Search satisfying. So I think a lot of us have probably come across this in our training. It's one of the ones that have, has seeped into mainstream education. And the simplest example is, imagine you're looking at an x-ray and you see, you see pneumonia, okay? So you get a little kick of dopamine, you high-five the team, pneumonia, job's done, thumbs up, antibiotics, and so on. But of course, the pitfall is that if you don't keep systematically working through that x-ray, you might miss that you know, apical tumor hidden away contralaterally or what have you. This is the same reason you need to come back and do secondary surveys and polytrauma and so on. And it's because our brains are primed to stop when we have found that big obvious problem. We get satisfaction. We think we've done a good job. It's cognitively, it's effort to keep on going and keep searching. It's irrational to stop at one problem. There's no reason to stop at one problem, but we do. So we do this all the time. And you know, on a medical ward, as soon as you've got one big diagnosis, there's a tendency to stop working away systematically through all the rest of your blood tests and ECGs and so on. And in doing so, you can miss secondary related or unrelated problems. So that would be search satisfying. And I think that's very intuitive to a lot of us. Another one actually that I see a lot kind of doing consults, say someone comes in the front door perhaps they're seen by someone senior, okay? And they're given the label of a pneumonia. What can happen is they'll be admitted to medicine. So the, the baton is passed between teams, perhaps to a more junior person. And they look at the notes and say, sure, pneumonia. Who are they to argue, okay? Antibiotics will get started. Maybe it's the middle of the night. And you can see how this is going. The next day, it's a busy round. Now there's two doctors who've written acute pneumonia in the notes. So if you're seeing this, you're going to, you know, quite dutifully toe the line. Maybe I'll just the cultures and add to that narrative. And the tendency then is that you might ignore perhaps the blood pressure and the SATs are a little low, but you might say, look, we're only 24 hours into this treatment. Maybe that's reasonable. And it's only much, much later when someone perhaps from outside the team or someone much more senior comes along. And despite the fact there's now three doctors having written pneumonia in the notes, they'll actually stop and look at the x-ray properly and say, actually, 
that doesn't quite fit. And now this specter of perhaps a PE or an MI begins to loom and you're playing catch up and so on, and potentially a patient is coming to harm. And that's diagnostic momentum, which I think is really descriptive. You can see the momentum from the, from the beginning, the label's stuck, and these labels are sticky. And it's especially if someone senior has said this, and if you're more junior to them, there's a confidence thing, you know, you may not have enough medical background knowledge to feel that you can really challenge this or you might just it's easier cognitively to just accept it like it takes a lot of work to stop everything and go back to the start and actually that you know that happens a lot and i think you see it when you're doing consults a lot because you're coming in as an outsider with fresh eyes and you haven't been part of that journey you're kind of less likely to fall for it so that's that's another really common one that i really like and i guess the message there is that it's really key i think always to be to tr- trust but verify, be sort of politely cynical about everything and just always take a big step back and say, Am I, is everyone really sure about this? And then, you know, you ask for a few, I'll give you one more because I know I'm talking a lot here, mm-hmm. but let's say framing is a really common one. All right, so a great example, if, if a psychiatrist refers in to kidney patient for assessment, okay, and says, I'd like you to confirm my suspicion here, please, that this woman has anxiety-related hyperventilation. I presented that in a very specific way, and that is framed in such a way that you're much more likely to miss a PE than simply saying there's a tachypneic woman who's presented for assessment. And, you know, you might think that that's really ham-fisted and, you know, no one's going to fall for that. But actually in Edinburgh, you know, during the trial I ran, I asked, you know, maybe a hundred people or so, three quarters of them fell for it and completely missed the PE, despite her being hypoxic and having a couple of risk factors. But And you know the reason was I framed it in that way, and I threw in some red herrings to make it look like I was actually asking about how to manage acute psychiatric illness and so on. And you know we encounter this a lot, and it's a little bit related to diagnostic momentum, isn't it? But how things are framed completely influences how we approach it. And this is how advertisers you know, pharmaceutical companies or just advertisers in our daily life, they frame things to us in such a way that they're really leading us, uh, leading the witness, they're leading us where they want us to go. They're really thoughtful about how things are framed when you approach them. So, you know, those are three obvious, easy ones. I think we can all kind of see how we've encountered them. But, you know, what applies to you specifically, it would be for you to find out, I think. Well, the relevance, I must say, just from what you're telling us, I can see how those are implied, you know, day-to-day clinical decision-making. And thanks for giving us those examples. So what I'm thinking about is, you know, in medicine, we we learn continuously. Evidence-based is growing. We acquire new information throughout, you know, training careers. How does cognitive bias that we just discussed um, impact, you know, information acquisition and new learning? How these kind of old perceptions or experiences affect the way we can find the knowledge and, and change practice? Yeah. So from the literature, it's actually easier to, it's easier to answer your question in reverse. How does new learning influence bias? Because experience is actually hugely impactful in helping uh, inoculate yourself against bias. So we know that so everyone is susceptible to these biases. It doesn't matter your IQ, your level of seniority and so on. But what we do know is that the more expert you are, the more knowledge you have in an area, the less likely you are to make a bias. It never hits zero, never gets close to it, but it does improve. So learning more and having a really robust schema of, of information about a topic makes it easier to avoid mistakes, makes it easier to see the red flags, makes it easier to avoid you know, incorrect framing and diagnostic momentum, as we just said, and so on. So you can make yourself resistant in that way. So that's the key interaction there. And there's also ideas that 
learning in a very structured expert sort of schematic way and i'll explain that in a sec can help again to inoculate against bias if you're very junior so what i mean by that is junior practitioners in anything but we'll say clinically in medicine they tend to learn by just kind of trying to absorb a ton of information and try and memorize facts and lists and it's not highly structured whereas the way experts tend to retain information is in like a very very precise and bespoke filing cabinet almost. So they've divided things into a, a flow or a schema that works for them, maybe emergencies, non-emergencies. They're, they're making connections and integrating things very, very carefully and thoughtfully so that when they learn new knowledge, they know exactly where to file it. If they're learning about a new disease or new medicine, they say they have a context they can just slip it into quickly. And it benefits them from all of the anti-biasing you've done in the past. Whereas if you teach more junior practitioners how to do that, if you teach them how experts think about problems, they can gain some of the benefits of the experts schema without being an expert themselves. And that's been demonstrated in sort of case study orientated trials. So I think that's the big interaction between bias and learning. Does bias make you, you know, how does bias interact with learning in the kind of in the, in the forward sense of that relationship? I think that's not as clear actually. Uh, we know learning can help bias, but uh, you know, does bias impact your learning? I'm not sure. I'm, I, there's nothing written about that. So it's, it's something that needs to be looked at, I guess. So you described one way to mitigate bias. Any other ways in which we can uh, mitigate the effect of cognitive bias in day-to-day clinical practice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the real question, isn't it? And, and this is the big gap, I think, one of the big gaps in, in our knowledge why not just come up with clever strategies to, to de-bias yourself and it'll never be a problem again and we just can move on with our lives. I suppose it's clearly not as easy as that sounds, is it? So there's many, many reasons, right? So the first is that a lot of us are unaware of when we're making mistakes and when we have biases. And there's lots of reasons for that. It can be psychological uh, defense mechanisms. We don't want to admit we're wrong, perhaps. We don't want to examine our motivations and desires too closely. It's a bit uncomfortable and confronting. But also, we tend to be overconfident. And it's well demonstrated that people in general are overcompetent and that when you are, you tend to make more mistakes. And there's also a hindsight bias. You look back and, you know, you tend to rearrange the facts of the past just subtly to fit your own narrative. And there's a blind spot bias. We're, we're actually not too bad at seeing others' bias, but it's demonstrably harder to see our own. So even before we begin to talk about how we can debias ourselves, it's, it's worth acknowledging the various challenges. And that's not even to touch on the challenges of you know designing interventions and trying to prove that these things actually work. You know, really heterogeneous samples of people. It's hard to simulate clinical environments. You know, people are so different that you need huge sample sizes to try and power these things. It's hard to know if your intervention is even being implemented. So, you know, one of the things I've come to respect, having done a lot of much more technical science and hard science, is actually doing research on human beings is pretty tricky stuff. So respect to those who can. In terms of what works then, with all that said, you know, it's worth thinking of like Carl Sagan, I guess, and thinking, you know, absence of evidence here doesn't necessarily mean that there's the evidence of absence of efficacy, right? The one that is most commonly exposed is slowing down. So type two thinking that I mentioned earlier, it's slower, it's deliberative. If you literally slow down, just stop physically and stop rushing out to the next case and invest some time into what you're doing, you will naturally become more inclined to use type two thinking. You will naturally start to spot inaccuracies, biases, things you've overlooked. Perhaps you'll spot that momentum. You'll see it's been framed by the refer letter in a particular way. So slowing down does actually help. The data is 
overall suggests that it does. It's a little bit mixed, but I think that's more to do with how the studies are done. It does suggest that slowing down helps. The problem is, of course, slowing down is really hard when <laughs> the most valuable resource in our daily lives is time. But I guess, as I've mentioned, knowing when to slow down, spotting that this case is not straightforward. I'm not sure why something is up. Let's just stop. Or someone has been re-referred in, you know, that kind of red flag. It's their second time, third time presenting. Stop, slow down. Don't just rush over this one. Another way that we can help that has some evidence to support it is this idea of metacognition. So metacognition is just a fancy way of saying thinking about thinking. And we actually, we do this all the time. But what's fascinating is that very, very simple approaches can be helpful. So there's a really lovely little study showing that actually just saying to someone when you hand them a case, this is a really tough case, ramps up their diagnostic accuracy because it primes them to look out for problems. And similarly, if they say to themselves, this is a tough case, they become more accurate, which seems almost childish in its simplicity, but that's what you need to do. That's how metacognition works. Other classic kind of questions you can ask yourself that are part of this. What's the worst case scenario if I'm wrong? So that's a kind of a front door medicine sort of approach, but it, it does work. And when I say it does work, it's, there's, there's some data to support this. This isn't my opinion. Asking questions like, does all the data fit into my hypothesis here? That's also very effective. You can see that you know, while you're thinking about your pneumonia, there's a troponin leak that you know, it's a bit more than you're comfortable with, that sort of thing. Similarly, the corollary of that is, uh, you know, what data is missing? If this is my hypothesis, why don't I have X, Y, and Z to prove it? And it's checking your own confidence again. How confident am I? And, and why is that? And asking yourself that follow-up why. So if you say, actually, I'm only mediumly confident in this. Why is that? And then you say, well, actually, it's because, you know, it's because they don't look quite right. And then you start to unpack and confront those little things that you may have glossed over when you were in type one thinking and just racing towards a, towards a conclusion. So, you know, these are intuitive questions. And I think as we practice more, a lot of us tend to ask ourselves these questions more. Or if we take a case to our colleagues over coffee or whatever, these are the questions you tend to bounce off each other. But this is why it's triggering metacognition. And then I suppose just one last one is just the humble checklist. I, I hate checklists, but actually I've come to respect them. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it's I'm just running out of bandwidth <laughs> mentally, but there's definitely a role for them and there's some evidence to support them too. You just have to be very thoughtful where you deploy them. So they work pretty well in very constrained situations and they work better when you're more junior. So I think probably the most successful one I've seen was interpreting ECGs. So it's a really, really tightly focused task. They don't perform particularly well in unselected take emergency departments and so on, you, you need to use them like kind of a surgical instrument, really. But when you do use them properly, they can be great. They force you to consider data and decisions that you might miss. Simple. We've known about them forever. It's just a case of thoughtful deployment rather than, you know, harassing junior doctors with my checklists. I, I don't think that's necessarily progress. So those are three probably of the, of the best supported approaches. Really like the idea of thinking about thinking. That's a great one, I think, and um, presume that's how you do the transition, as you said, from type one thinking to you know, type two thinking. Yeah. So we talk about the topic, and I was just wondering, you know, training around this and training and underlying thought process, clinical decision making, and cognitive bias. You touched a bit at the beginning. How important do you think this is, and how can we do it better? Because I think we're lacking some of that at the present. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think I recently read that less than half of the medical curricula in the US, and I don't know if it's been looked at in the UK, even talk about clinical decision making. And it's not even clear whether they would incorporate maybe the more recent ideas about bias and so on. Educational interventions, they can work, but you're as likely to find a positive study as your negative one. So I think what that means is that it's not really clear what the optimal form should be. And I'm not sure I have an answer really, but you know, we do know that you need to have to make your decisions, you need to have your knowledge base. So you, we have to maintain that important traditional education. I suspect that the most effective intervention in terms of integrating into training is to do just that, is to integrate it as we train from an early age and to introduce the ideas and the concepts and just to highlight them as over the years so that they just become second nature. You know, isolated teaching events, kind of these ad hoc drop-in sessions or little kind of smash and grab interventions, they tend to fail pretty miserably, actually. And they tend not to be very useful either for students. I think pretty much all of the student trials that I can remember reading were unsuccessful. Whereas when you're actually practicing and you see the relevance of these sorts of things, I think it obviously becomes more interesting and more important for you to integrate into your practice. So there is a fairly consistent beneficial signal, but you know, as to the form that the education should take, I think is an unknown entity. My feeling is to integrate it early and just make it part of the wallpaper of medical education. And that's probably... Can't swear, but that's what I would do. And what about reflective practice? We know that we're encouraged to do that throughout our education and training and career. Is there a role mm. for reflection when considering cognitive bias? Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, because to me, reflection overlaps hugely with metacognition that we were just talking about. And, you know, it's by sitting down and thinking and reflecting on decisions that you made, you know, acknowledging that it's harder to do it in retrospect than it is at the time. Well, it can be harder. I think that's where the overlap is. So I think it can trigger those sort of metacognitive events where you look back and so I think there's value in reflection. I think that's the overlap there. And, you know, I think a really good time for that is at the M&M process, which we should you know, all be involved in and, and part of. And I think it is in, in many departments. I was recently in a department where during the M&M, some of the participants started reflecting on a decision that was made and kind of articulating the various biases they felt were present at the time. And it was it was a really eye-opening experience to listen to that. I thought it was really useful because I think a lot of the other listeners were learning more. It was more enriching for the other participants and, and probably was better for patient care overall because you take more away from that. And that was hugely encouraging. And I think every m and I've ever been in, you can sit there and, and often notice little biases that could have crept or big biases that could have crept in and influenced decisions at various points. And I think articulating them out loud and sharing them with the room and exploring them could be hugely beneficial. So that's something in practice that I think we could be doing out with, you know, the more educationally orientated uh, reflection, kind of portfolio level reflection. That's a very good example, I think. In terms of, so we talked a bit about education around the topic and you described your experience and your research. Are there opportunities for you know, medical students, trainees, clinicians to get involved and work around it? Or what would you advise? Yeah, so there definitely are opportunities. Um, I think it's a really accessible area of research because for one, you don't need a, a multi-million pound omics lab. So that's a nice start. But you do need to be very thoughtful and careful, particularly about your you know, experimental design and it's very much a multidisciplinary sort of area. 
What's really interesting, and I would love to flag up to anyone interested, is that there's a website called improveddiagnosis.org, and that has only been birthed in the last few years. And it is the website of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, which is not a catchy title, but is actually a very cool society that has been formed by a lot of the kind of thought leaders in the field. And it's pretty much a one-stop shop for anyone who wants to get involved in this because it discusses QI projects, research projects. It essentially gives you all of the kind of the guidance you need to slip into the field and get up to speed on, on thoughts. It has components for educators, so those people who are teaching medical students and postgrads. It has resources for those who want to implement change in their own units. It has funding calls. It's just really pretty much like the hub for kind of cognitive bias and decision making. So it's not a nascent field. I mean, this has been around since the kind of middle of last century, but it's only really in the last decade or two, maybe three, that it's kind of bubbling up in clinical medicine. So it's a good time to get involved. There's a lot of interest. There's increasing amounts of funding being directed at this. And there's this kind of an emerging community of practitioners and researchers who are really, really passionate about this. So improveddiagnosis.org is probably where you'd want to start that journey. Thank you very much. We'll link the website to this episode and hopefully the listeners will be able to have a look there. Thank you very much. We've had a very thought-provoking discussion today and thanks for sharing your knowledge and also experience around the topic. If there will be a few take-home messages, what would you say in terms of clinical decision-making? Yeah. So I think take-home messages would be that, one, just be aware that making decisions is tricky and we often get it wrong. And I think even just accepting that is the first important thing, that you're going to get it wrong. Second message would be slow down and look for opportunities to slow down and start thinking and asking yourself questions about your decisions. Interrogate yourself. Um, just cross-examine yourself continually, when, particularly when you're in difficult situations. And that will, that will probably keep you right. And I think you probably should cut me off before the word and, because I think two, two is plenty. I think that those would be my key messages to take home. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that. It was a pleasure to speak to you. All right, no worries. Thanks.